Welcome to our listeners in the Big Apple from across the U.S. and around the world. I'm Jeff Goodman, and this is Rediscovering New York. Professionally, I'm a real estate broker with Halstead Real Estate, and I love New York. Rediscovering New York is a weekly program about the history, texture, and vibe of this amazing city. And we do it through interviews with historians, local business owners, nonprofit organizations, preservationists, local musicians and artists, and the occasional elected official. On some shows, we focus on an individual New York neighborhood, exploring its history and its current energy. What makes that particular New York neighborhood special? On other shows like tonight, we host a show about an interesting and vital color of the city and its history that's not focused on one particular neighborhood. Prior episodes have covered everything from the history of U.S. presidents who came from, lived in, or had some interesting history here in New York. We talked about African-American history in the city. We explored the history of women activists in the women's suffrage movement. We had several shows around Stonewall 50 about the city's LGBT community and the gay rights movement. And we've explored the history of bicycles. We've talked about the history of punk and opera and even explored some of the city's greatest train station and even some of its bridges. After the broadcast, each show is available on podcast on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and other services. Tonight, we're hosting another special episode where all of us on the show and our engineer are in separate locations due to the physical distancing that's essential to keep as many of us as safe as possible during the present health crisis. Uh, today has been a beautiful spring day in New York, and it's very fitting that tonight we are going to explore two of New York's most amazing parks. I call them twins, but really one's an older and one's a younger sibling, Central Park and Prospect Park. And in another milestone for rediscovering New York, even though this is the 65th episode that we've had, uh, we have two regulars who are on together, Joyce Gold and David Griffin. They've been on separate shows, but we've not had them on together. Uh, but Joyce and David and I have collaborated on a couple of events that have been live where I've had the pleasure of working with them both simultaneously. And speaking of our first guest, Joyce Gold is a recognized expert and educator in New York history and for over 40 years has been guiding New Yorkers and visitors alike to rave reviews through private walking tours as well as tours open to the public. Joyce has published two guidebooks, one of them from Windmills to the World Trade Center, a walking guide through the history of Lower Manhattan, and the other from Trout Stream to Bohemia, a walking guide through the history of Greenwich Village. Joyce has contributed entries to the Encyclopedia of New York City. And if this resume wasn't enough, the New York Times has called Joyce, this is a quote, the doyen of New York City tour guides, a level of recognition any tour guide would relish. And we welcome Joyce back to Rediscovering New York. Joyce, a hearty welcome back to the show. Thanks, Jeff. It's great to be back here. Uh, you're not originally from New York, are you? No, I was brought up in a small town in <clears throat> Pennsylvania. We moved to New York when I was in the ninth grade, and I've been here ever since. How did you get engaged in the work you do, specifically bringing New York's history to life for the people who were lucky enough to go on your walking tours? Well, it originally began as a way to make New Yorkers enjoy their city more. I was a computer analyst at the Federal Reserve Bank of New York on near Wall Street. And one day I just picked up a book from the 1890s. It was about old New York, and it was written at, in an old New York period. It's about a 100-year-old book, and it just changed my daily commute. Streets that I passed downtown turned out to be some of the earliest streets of the city and uh, changed 
my daily life, and I thought it would be very useful for other New Yorkers to know about old New York and the layers of time. Well, speaking of old New York, uh, it's certainly not the city's oldest park, but Central Park. Central Park is more than 160 years old. When was the park actually conceived? Well, in 1852, that was the year that both political parties decided that there should be a great park. We had never had a big park in the city, and that's when they decided to have it. But you might say that the park was begun in 1858 because person they had originally thought would design it had a freak accident and died. So the city sent out a, a competition, and two men won the competition, competition in 1858. And for the next 20 years, with two breaks, they worked on the original design. Mm. Before we get to the park a little more in detail, I wanted to ask you a question about what New Yorkers did to to get fresh air before then. Before the Civil War, New York City only consisted of Manhattan Island. What kinds of parks and open spaces could the New Yorkers of the day enjoy before Central Park opened? Well, there was a ferry from West 23rd Street that went to Hoboken, and there was a park there called Elysian Fields. And sometimes Manhattanites would go over there. In the 1830s, the uh, Nature Cemetery, Greenwood Cemetery, in what was then the separate city of Brooklyn, began. And New York Manhattanites would take the rather long trip with uh, several means of transportation connected and walk through the plantings of Greenwood. Oh, Greenwood Cemetery in Brooklyn. That's right. And this was, of course, before Prospect Park was built, which we're going to talk to our second guest, uh, David Griffin, about on the second half of the show. Um, which brings us to Frederick Law Olmsted and Calvert Vox, some of the greatest New York designers of all time. Were they the original architects of Central Park? Yes, they were. They were the two men that decided to join together and come up with the original design for the park that they called Greensward. They won the contest and then they went to work on the park itself. Mm. My next question is actually in two parts, Joyce. Uh, uh, the first is what the concepts were that they used to design the park and sort of a 1A. Uh, were any of these concepts rev- revolutionary or had they been tried and true before Olmsted and Vox designed Central Park? Well, there were a couple of uh, design concepts. One was to design in open spaces, closed spaces, and vistas, what you could see from where. Now, the design was going to be two and a half, ultimately two and a half miles by half a mile, which makes it a very long and narrow space. So they did certain tricks to fool the eye to make you feel that it wasn't so small. Uh, Belvedere Castle being on a hill was one of those techniques. So uh, that was one of the things they designed in Water. There were a number. There are a number of lakes in the park, and uh, I don't. There were no major parks in America at the time, so none of these had an American precedent. These concepts. Wow. What were some of the challenges with building the park, and did any of them have to do with the park's geology specifically? Well, about twelve thousand years ago, in the last ice age, uh, the big glacier came down from Wisconsin and pushed many rocks and other things down to the south uh, until the weather warmed up and then it receded, leaving everything at what they call the terminal moraine. That was the middle of Central Park. So all of these outcroppings were part of the challenge. 
also the feeling of dealing with a long and narrow space and trying to make it feel a little bit more um, more wide was another challenge. I, I read that they they had a lot of demolition and a lot of explosions specifically in that um, uh, the designers and the builders of the park that that more gunpowder was used to clear rock from the park that had been employed even at the Battle of Gettysburg, which you think about the amount of gunpowder that's and that and that was black powder in those days. And they used gunpowder because they didn't have uh, dynamite yet. But there were also lots of swamps and drainage was a big challenge for them. And Olmsted decided that a good drainage system would be a, an excellent prototype for rural Americans to be able to drain their property as well. So he was even thinking beyond the design of the park in his work. Mm. And I also read that uh, they had to bring in topsoil from Long Island and New Jersey because most of the soil in in what became Central Park was not fertile enough to uh, uh, to give root and to have plants and trees flourish. Wow! Yeah, that's quite an amazing story. In the twenty years that the designers worked on the park, ten thousand people worked also. So it was a major, major job. Mm. Who was the park designed and built for? Was it was was it designed and built for all New Yorkers, or was it a little bit more of a, a smaller uh, uh, audience that they were that they were building the park for? Well, it was originally designed for the wealthy. The park became a place that a wealthy woman could feel free to walk along without the stares of lower class men as they saw it. This was a place that the wealthy families who had their own carriages could take a ride through the park. But that begins to change after a while. When did the park, um, when did who the park served begin to change? Was it around the time of the Civil War shortly after it opened or was it after that? No, it was around the time of the Civil War. Boss Tweed, the famous white-collar crook who was the head of Tammany Hall, the boss-run part of the Democratic Party, uh, started putting on free concerts for working-class people on Sundays, and that allowed people to feel that maybe they would be welcome in the park. And um, also the Metropolitan Museum, which was built right uh, what turned out to be within the park or at the edge of the park, they were closed on Sundays for many years, and their collections were those of the well-to-do people. They said, uh, my, my text said that Sabbatarian Presbyterians didn't think it could be open on Sunday. And Sunday was the only day of the week working class people might have off. So uh, in the beginning of the 20th century, when the, the Met wanted to expand, the state of New York very nicely said to them, We'll give you the permission to expand only if you open on Saturdays and uh, op- only, off- only if you open on Sundays. And so that was also the first time working class people were accepted really into the Met and therefore right into the park, right at its edge. Mm. Um, before we take a break in a minute, um, is there anything within the park itself now that was there before the park was designed? Yes, there are, I, I guess I think of it as two and a half things. In 18, <laughs> two and a half. <laughs> in 1814, uh, there was a blockhouse built that's still in the northwest part of the park, and that was to defend in our American War of 1812 against a potential British invasion. This was a war, of course, between the U.S. and England. 
went on for three years, um, they, uh, they feared that the British would come in from Long Island Sound. And so the blockhouse was built. It was never used for this purpose, but that's still there and still can easily be visited. And also um, the uh, New York State Arsenal. In 1848, there were uh, riots at different times. The state of New York decided to keep the arms away from the mobs. And since what is now Central Park was basically the middle of nowhere, it was built for that purpose. But by the 1930s, it changed into its present use, the headquarters for the Parks Department. What's the half one? Well, that would, I think of as the reservoir. Uh, there was an earlier reservoir. It's not the one that's still there today. But there is a reservoir, and there was a reservoir. So that's where I come up with the half. <laughs> okay. Well, actually, when we come back from our break, we're going to uh, ask you about the water in the park. Um, we're going to take a short break, and when we come back, we're going to continue our conversation with Joyce Gold of Joyce Gold History Tours about Central Park. We'll be back in a minute. <laughs> You're listening to the Talking Alternative Network. run or are ready to open your own business? Hi, I'm Jeremiah Fox. I've been operating and opening small business for the last 25 years, and I'm the host of the new show, The Entrepreneurial Web. Tune in every Friday at noon Eastern time for insights and stories on the nuances of running small business right here on Fridays at noon, talkradio.nyc. Are you a conscious co-creator? Are you on a quest to raise your vibration and your consciousness? I'm Sam Leibowitz, your Conscious Consultant. And on my show, The Conscious Consultant Hour, Awakening Humanity, we will touch upon all these topics and more. Listen live at our new time on Thursdays at 12 noon Eastern Time. That's The Conscious Consultant Hour, Awakening Humanity, Thursdays, 12 noon on talkradio.nyc. Talking Alternative Radio, 24 hours a day. And you're back to Rediscovering New York and the special show about New York's greatest parks. Of course, I'm talking about Central and Prospect Park, although some park aficionados uh, might claim that there are parks greater than that, but I don't think that there are. Our first guest is Joyce Gold of Joy, the amazing Joyce Gold of Joyce Gold History Tours. Um, Joyce, uh, I know now, unfortunately, with physical distancing that we all have to maintain, um, you're not giving any tours, but when we uh, can uh, open again, uh, what are some of the tours that that you give that people could could take advantage of 
Well, I deal with over 40 different neighborhoods of the city, and many of those neighborhoods I do multiple emphases on. Greenwich Village is one of the first tours I ever gave. The financial district, basically where the city and even the United States began, is also very popular. I have a number of ethnic tours, uh, the Irish tours of Hell's Kitchen, and the Five Points Chinatown tours, uh, Little Italy tours, the South Village Italian tours, a Jewish Harlem tour, African Harlem tour, and uh, many, many other ones. It's just an endless city and every neighborhood, and there are so many of them, has a different history, and so each has a different identity today. Now, uh, I, of course, am not giving tours in this particular time, but I have an email address that if someone wants me to email them when I'm back to giving tours, I do regularly scheduled weekly tours, but then mostly what I do are private tours, and I would be glad to let them know when I'm back in operation. Of course, uh, I love your tours, Joyce, and uh, I've experienced some of your private tours myself or uh, the people that, that that I know. And your website is JoyceGoldHistoryTours.com, where people can find out more and get on your mailing list. Right. And they can email me their, their uh, name and address, uh, email address, and that's Joyce at JoyceGoldHistoryTours.com. All right. Well, getting back to Central Park, let's talk about the water. Um, were there any bodies of water mm-hmm. in the park before the park was designed? You mentioned a reservoir where there, there was the mm-hmm. uh, old reservoir, which isn't there anymore. But uh, were, there, were, were there any other bodies of water that were there before the park there were, was designed? Dutch arrived in Manhattan in 1624, they found uh, a dozen streams and four dozen lakes And one of the lakes, a natural lake, was at the southern end of the park. And at the northeast end, the Harlem Mirror was another one. Uh, Those were drained. The present lakes on those sites are not the original ones. But there was water there before. When was the present reservoir built? Was it it after the park opened or was uh, was it built before the park opened? No, it was after the park opened because the original 1840s, Croton Receiving Reservoir was a rectangle. And when Olmsted and Vox came on the scene, they said, in nature, there are no straight lines. And so they, the site where the original reservoir was is now the Great Lawn. And um, the present reservoir was their idea. Oh. It, it was the distributing reservoir, but we, don't, we haven't used it for a very long time. But it's so beautiful, and runners love to go around it, and so we're keeping it on. And, of course, named after that amazing, venerable New Yorker uh, who helped save Grand Central, uh, Jackie Kennedy Onassis. Um, Um, We can't speak about the glory of the park without also taking stock of the communities that were uprooted to create them. Who who were some of the people who were in some of the communities that were in, in the bounds of what became the park? Well, it's important to remember that the city really started getting settled at the southern tip. And so uh, in the 1840s and 1850s, and even actually even in the 1820s, uh, the site of Central Park was considered way out of town and very inexpensive property. 
And so a lot of the freed blacks, well, by 1827, there was no slavery left officially in the state of New York. And a lot of those people moved there. And also in the 18, uh, well, by 1850, when a quarter of New York had just arrived from Ireland, about a quarter of the people living in the park were the Irish immigrants as well. Um. Let's talk for a minute about the gardens in the northern part of the park to uh, uh, some of the uninitiated who, who haven't been to the northern stretches of the park. They think of, of Central Park as being natural and being wild, uh, but there actually is, uh, let's even call it more of a European feel, and there are gardens of the north mm-hmm. of the park. Um, mm-hmm. Were they part of the original design? Uh, no, they weren't. And I just have to say about what you just said that a lot of people do think of Central Park as little old natural New York, but it is a giant work of art and it, uh, it's in no way natural. Everything is really the part of the design. Uh, what you had in the northern part of the park, I assume you're talking about the conservatory gardens. Yes, yes. Enter through the big Vanderbilt gates uh, off of 105th Street and 5th Avenue. And part of the large uh, garden is in the Italian style. Part of it is in the French style, and part of it is in the British style. It's a place that many weddings uh, take place, especially in June. But it's on the site of a giant greenhouse, which used to be where they started some of the plantings that went into the park. And so these, uh, these are not original to the park at all, but they're glorious. And a word also about the northern part versus the southern part. On a beautiful summer weekend, the southern part is really quite crowded. And hardly anybody is in the northern part, which is also beautifully restored. So one of my goals has been to try to get New Yorkers to check out 110th Street and Fifth Avenue or the area up there to see how beautiful that is and avoid some of the crowds. And something tells me that there is a Joyce Gold history tour of the northern part of Central Park that one could take advantage of. <laughs> well, that is very smart of you to notice that, yes. <laughs> Indeed, and I do. Want to in the south, one that starts in the north. I've been on the on that tour. It's a great tour, and those gardens are really, really something. Um, I, I think my favorite is the English Garden because it tends to yeah. meander a little more. You know, yeah. And the muses, yeah. and the muses are in the the, stat, the fountain of the muses are in that one too. Yeah. Um, Let's talk a, uh, a bit about the buildings in the park. Uh, you know, one of the most famous buildings in the park is is Tavern on the Green. Was that always a restaurant? Was it designed as that when the park opened? No, not at all. It was originally designed as a sheep fold. Sheep were brought into the park to show people in New York, kids in New York particularly, I guess, where wool comes from. They could see the sheep being shorn, and the sheep would keep the great, great lawn bet mode and every night the sheep would be walked over to the sheepfold but in the 1930s that gets changed the sheep by that time had gotten a little inbred and uh diseased and uh the sheep were shipped out and in <laughs> Restaurant, have another Actually, I have to put a little aside. Uh, in the First World War, uh, when the United States entered the war, uh, Woodrow Wilson, just to, uh, you know, like we're all in this together, they actually had sheep on the front lawn of the White House. Uh, huh. The present occupant would have put use of it to the same way. But anyway, I digress a little bit. Uh, let's talk about Belvedere Castle. When was uh, the castle built? Well, that is an excellent question, and because I thought you were going to ask that, I looked up the answer. 
And the answer is 1873. So that's within the 20 years that Olmsted and Vox were, Vox were working on it. Now, Belvedere Castle, as I said, was built on this, on a hill, the second highest point in the park. And remember that the park was designed with vistas in mind. So you could be below the uh, castle, look up, and because the castle was sort of small, it made it look even further away. Then you could also walk up to the castle, and uh, you had the vista from there. The U.S. Uh, weather station was in Belvedere for a very long time, actually from 1873 to 1919. And uh, whenever they would say it's 80 degrees in Central Park, Belvedere is what they were talking about. Oh. And of course, Belvedere is on the northwestern edge of the Ramble, which is another great part of the park. Mm-hmm. Oh. There's, a, there's a structure on the Mir, on the Harlem Mir. Um, what was that originally and what is it used for now? It's like well, a story, I think. It's called the Charles Dana Discovery Center. Is that what you're talking about? Yes. Uh huh. It's just so picturesque, and it was only built in 1993. In fact, it's considered the newest building in the park. It's a wonderful place that has free lectures, and they give you free fishing poles, and um, to be able to uh, to to uh, fish in the stocked mirror course at the moment it's closed but it's just beautiful i've also seen people rent rowboats from it to be able to uh, row uh not only on the lake but also on the mirror mirror by the way is the dutch word for lake mm. um we actually have a question emailed um uh have there been any secret underground lodges or other hidden spaces in or under central park in its history that's from Andy from Andy's Treasure Trove. Andy actually was in San Francisco, and now he lives in Tucson, Arizona. Oh, my goodness. There are always people who have been living in the park or staying there in the middle of the night. We actually had a few very famous murders, but they were just in the middle of the night when today it is officially closed. I'm sure there are underground places where people lived, but I can't really place any of them myself. Mm. Well, one construction that is absolutely magnificent, perhaps the park's finest, is the Bethesda Terrace and the Fountain. Mm-hmm. Um, was that part of the original design of the park? It was, and um, that is a real. That's really on uh, just above Seventy Second Street, and uh, there is a magnificent and very famous fountain in the middle of it. Uh, the Angel of the Waters Fountain. It figured in uh, the television series Friends, and it figured in Angels in America. And the fountain was put in to uh, sort of bring people together after the Civil War and also celebrate the idea of drinking water instead of booze. It was... uh, (laughs) Emma Stebbins was the wonderful uh, sculptor of it. She had studied in, uh, in Rome, and uh, it's one of the very few commissions in the mid-19th century that female artists were getting. Mm. We're almost out of time, Joyce, but there's one other thing I want to ask you about, uh, and that's the traverses in the park, which mm. are on 66th, 79th, 86th, and 96th, and 96th Street. None of them are straight, and they all have curves. Was this done to keep with the pastoral and country feeling of the park, or was there another reason why they, why they designed them that way? Well, it's interesting that it does add to the country feel, but I think the main reason they uh, did them that way was to avoid 
drag racing by young men with horses. If they found a straightaway, they tend to <laughs> on them. And the city didn't want that, so they curved them. So we had uh, young men, even in the days of horses, that drag race. They didn't need to have oh, no. a motor vehicle to do that. No. <laughs> um, well, actually, I'm going to ask you one more question. Um, uh, and uh, that's also about horses. Uh, there was a stable. There were a number of stables near the park. The last one closed years ago, but there's mm-hmm. still a bridle path. Can people still ride horses on the bridle path? Well, there just aren't any horses around there. I don't think it's close to horses, but the Claremont stables closed about 20 years ago. Uh, the owner said that it was because the public tended to walk on the uh, paths, although it's possible that it has something to do with real estate values. But anyway, there are no horses nearby. Oh. Well, Joyce, as always, uh, it's been a real pleasure, and the time has gone by so quickly. Our first guest on this special episode of Rediscovering New York about New York's greatest parts, parks uh, has been Joyce Gold of Joyce Gold History Tours. You can find out about Joyce's tours and reach out to her directly at JoyceGoldHistoryTours.com. Thank you, Joyce. Thank you, Jeff. We're going to take a short break, and when we come back, we're going to speak to our second guest about New York's other great park. We'll be back in just a moment. You're listening to the Talking Alternative Network at www.talkingalternative.com. Now, broadcasting 24 hours a day. Talking Alternative. Do you run or are ready to open your own business? Hi, I'm Jeremiah Fox. I've been operating and opening small business for the last 25 years, and I'm the host of the new show, The Entrepreneurial Web. Tune in every Friday at noon Eastern time for insights and stories on the nuances of running small business right here on Fridays at noon, talkradio.nyc. love or are you intrigued about New York City and its neighborhoods? I'm Jeff Goodman, host of Rediscovering New York, a weekly show that showcases New York's history and its extraordinary neighborhoods. Every Tuesday live at 7 p.m., we focus on a particular neighborhood and explore its history, its vibe, its feel, and its energy. Tune in live every Tuesday at 7 p.m. on talkradio.nyc. I'm the aptly named host of Tony Martinetti Nonprofit Radio, big nonprofit ideas for the other 95%. Fundraising, board relations, social media, my guests and I cover everything that small and mid-sized shops struggle with. If you have big dreams and a small budget, you have a home at Tony Martinetti Nonprofit Radio. Fridays, 1 to 2 Eastern at TalkingAlternative.com. Talking Alternative Radio, 24 hours a day. back and you're back to rediscovering new york support for the show comes from our sponsors christopher pappas mortgage specialist at td bank to find out how chris can help you with all your residential home mortgage needs and tailor a mortgage that's right for you please call chris at 
1-800-273-3918. And support also comes from the law offices of Thomas Siaka, specializing in wills, estate planning, probate, and inheritance litigation. Tom and his staff can be reached at 212-495-0317. Our show is about New York, its history, and the myriad textures of our amazing city. There's another great show on the air about New York and specifically about the business of real estate. Good morning, New York, real estate with Vince Rocco, my friend and colleague at Halstead. Vince's show airs live on Tuesday mornings at 9 a.m. on voiceamerica.com and also on podcast. You can like this show on Facebook and you can also follow me on Instagram and Twitter. My handles there are Jeff Goodman NYC. If you have comments or questions or if you'd like to get on our mailing list, please email me. Jeff at rediscoveringnewyork.nyc. One of the note before we get to our second guest, even though Rediscovering New York is not a show about the real estate business in New York, when I'm not on the air, I am indeed a real estate agent in our amazing city where I help my clients buy, sell, lease, and rent property. If you or someone you care about is considering a move into, out of, or within New York, I would love to help you with all those real estate needs. You can reach me and my team at 646 306 4761. Well, our second guest is also not a stranger to Rediscovering New York and is also the show's special consultant. I'm talking about the one and only David Griffin. David is a lifelong architectural enthusiast providing creative sales enhancing services for the national real estate community. He's the founder and CEO of Landmark Branding. His clients include architects and design firms, in addition to developers, brokers, and marketing companies. His room at the Top Series, co-hosted with Jennifer Wallace of Nascent Art New York, is the only ongoing networking series in real estate to feature tours of Manhattan's greatest buildings. David has a latest blog, which is fabulous. It's called Every Building on Fifth. And as you might expect from the title, it documents every single building on Fifth Avenue. That's every single building on Fifth Avenue from Washington Square right up to where Fifth Avenue ends at the Harlem River in Harlem. That's a long way. Uh, hundreds and hundreds of buildings are covered. Uh, aside from the David's blog, his writing has appeared in Real Estate Weekly. Metropolis, Dwell, and the National Trust Preservation Magazine. David, a hearty welcome back to Rediscovering New York. Good to be here, Jeff, or rather good to be here while you're there. <laughs> we are here, we are everywhere, uh, at, least, at least where the airwaves uh, uh, can take us right now. Um, you're a regular, and some of our listeners know you and your background, but as we have growing numbers of listeners, some don't. How did you get interested in architectural history and in New York history in particular? Well, part of it had to do with my siblings and myself being the first children to be hired by New York State to be costumed interpreters at a historic museum, in this case, the Old Bethpage Restoration Village, uh, which was out in uh, Nassau County on Long Island. So what happened was we were brought out and for festival days, we would dress up in clothing from the 1850s, 1860s period and demonstrate the toys and games of that time period. And uh, it was just wonderful sort of being able to kind of inhabit these older houses and learn about them uh, really sort of from the inside out. And it kind of stoked an interest in me in older buildings in general. And that just led to an interesting and, and you know, sort of how buildings were developed in American history. And uh, I studied architectural history um, extensively uh, with a focus on American architecture from the 1850s through the 1950s, 1960s, so, so sort of proto through classic modernism, mm -hmm. and have continued ever since. That, that 
Well, speaking of the 1850s, that's when your uh, uh, appreciation and study of, of architecture comes from. That was your work at uh, Bethpage. But it also is about the time that Prospect Park was conceived and designed. Yeah. Um, Brooklyn was its own city when the park was built. In fact, it was the third largest city in the, in the United States. But before we actually get to the park, I, I want to mention something briefly, almost a century, a century before the park was built. Um, the area that became the park saw some major action in the Battle of Long Island during the Revolutionary War, um, where had it not been for about 400 continental troops from Maryland, uh, that battle might have been the end of the newly born United States, certainly would have been the end of Washington's army. Uh, and actually, that, took part, that part of that battle took place in what's now the park, didn't it? Yes, in a place that was called Battle Pass which is actually part of the terminal moraine that um, Joyce had mentioned in her previous uh, sort of episode on Central Park, the Great Wisconsin Glacier deposited a great deal of material across what is now Brooklyn as well as Manhattan. And significant portions of that are now incorporated into Prospect Park. Um, the uh, highest point in Brooklyn actually is just adjacent to Prospect Park and Battle Pass is just a little south of that. It's where the old Flatbush Road passed from the what were then villages of Brooklyn to Flatbush, separate villages. Um, some of the heaviest fighting in the engagement, definitely the heaviest fighting possibly in New York State took place during that battle. Um, its loss definitely contributed to Washington's decision to retreat from Brooklyn to Manhattan. Um, however, although the battle to the British, they were able to hold them back long enough for Washington's army to escape across the East River to Lower Manhattan. Uh, there are currently plaques just north of the center of the Prospect Park Zoo that commemorate this, as well as what is called the Maryland Monument at Lookout Hills Foot, which honors, of course, the, the uh, division from Maryland that you just referenced. And it's probably it's it's probably the most moving place in all of Prospect Park. I'm in awe when I when I see it. Um, when was Prospect Park conceived? Well, uh, it was conceived about the same time as Central Park was. Uh, for many reasons, the city of Brooklyn had just built a reservoir in what is now Prospect Hill, just to the north of Prospect Park in 1856. So and because they did this, they needed to keep the lots around the reservoir free of development, which was then just beginning to really start in seriously um, in Brooklyn outside of the central portion of the city. Um, they also wanted to actually preserve the Battle Pass area. So uh, that was something that was sort of becoming to the forefront of people's minds in the 1850s, 1860s, this is the pre-Civil War period. People are beginning to become, I think, a little bit nervous about the state of the Union. And there was an interest uh, sort of ratcheting up and preserving Revolutionary War sites at that time. Although it wasn't, of course, until the centennial that you really see it kind of wholesale. However, those were basically cited as the, the two reasons for establishing what was going to become, at that point, the largest park in Brooklyn and, and definitely one of the largest landscape parks um, in New York City overall. So you had the area around it being developed as the country's really first commuter suburb. And as we mentioned, it was eventually to become the third largest city in the country after New York and Philadelphia. So 1858, uh, Frederick Law said Calvert Vox had already established Central Park in Manhattan. And then you had James Stranahan, who was then the president of the Brooklyn Board of Park Commissioners, a very kind of progressive department for a city during that period in American history. And he originally envisioned one huge park that would extend eastward all the way to Jamaica, Queens. However, development sort of stepped in. That did not happen. And what does remain of that proposed landscape are Prospect Park, 
and Forest Park in Queens, which is a similar size. Well, that would have been a, an enormous park. It would have been, you know, miles and miles and miles. It could have, would have been seven or eight miles wide of a park if it had actually, they'd built a park. It practically would have been a nature reserve right in the middle of the city, which mm. you know, there are some of those uh, to the north, but yeah, it did not occur, unfortunately. We also can't talk about the beginnings of Prospect Park before, uh, un- unless we mention Edwin Clark Litchfield. Who was Litchfield? Litchfield was a very prominent real estate developer at the time. Uh, He was also an investor and financier. And he had uh, built at that time a very, very important house, Litchfield Villa, uh, one of the largest Italian houses in New York State, Uh, definitely the largest one remaining in the city intact from that period, 1850s. Um, Alexander Jackson Davis was the um, architect, A.J. Davis, who did Lindhurst up in the Hudson River Valley for people familiar with National Trust Properties. And uh, what is now Third Street in Park Slope, which, as most people who are familiar with the area realize, is a, is a very wide avenue, it's tree-lined, it's very gracious, founded with very beautiful townhouses on both sides. That was the original driveway up the hill to Litchfield Villa, which crowned that particular area of what is now Prospect Park. So the Litchfield family developed the villa. Ten years later, the Parks Department comes knocking on the door, and Litchfield really didn't want to sell. He was very fond of his house, and he didn't, you know, care to sort of, you know, have it parceled off. He, he wanted to stay there, like build around me. I don't care. Um, the Parks Commission ultimately acquired the Litchfield plot in 1868 for 1.7 million dollars. That was a lot of money in those days. A lot of money in those days. It turned out to be 42% of the overall expenditure for land, even though the mansion and the plot it was on constituted just over 5% of the park's acreage. So I guess they really thought, no, we're not having this guy, you know, living in Prospect Park. That's just too much to deal with. Um, They bought it from his heirs, however. So Mm. he did, I think, live out his days in the house. One other thing that the park also encompassed was an old Quaker cemetery, which is still active. Yes, it is the Society of Friends, uh, a pre-existing Quaker cemetery. I believe it goes back to the 1780s. Um, it was accommodated under agreement under which the Society of Friends deeded the unused acreage to the park. So in other words, uh, that portion of the cemetery that had not yet been developed was deeded over to the park but they retained the remaining 10 acres for their private cemetery in perpetuity, as well as the rights to access the cemetery. And actually, um, occasionally, when I have been in Prospect Park, I have seen visitors to the cemetery, and I did once witness a funeral, uh, what appeared to be a funeral uh, coming in about 20 years ago or so. I don't think they're still burying people there, but it was definitely a memorial service. Oh, I've actually seen the cemetery. It, it's fenced off. I've actually been yeah. around it. It's it, 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 it's quite moving. Little tiny headstones, you know, they're keeping in, in line with uh, who friends are, how they lived, and, and, and also yeah, very how they simple, died. very understated. Yeah, very yeah. natural. Well, we're going to take a short break, and when we come back, we're going to continue our conversation with David Griffin of Landmark Branding about Prospect Park in Brooklyn. We'll be back in a minute. Talking Alternative Radio. 24 hours a day. I'm the aptly named host of Tony Martinetti Nonprofit Radio. Big nonprofit ideas for the other 95%. 
fundraising, board relations, social media. My guests and I cover everything that small and mid-sized shops struggle with. If you have big dreams and a small budget, you have a home at Tony Martinetti Nonprofit Radio. Fridays, 1 to 2 Eastern at TalkingAlternative.com. Are you a conscious co-creator? Are you on a quest to raise your vibration and your consciousness? I'm Sam Leibowitz, your Conscious Consultant. And on my show, The Conscious Consultant Hour, Awakening Humanity, we will touch upon all these topics and more. Listen live at our new time on Thursdays at 12 noon Eastern Time. That's The Conscious Consultant Hour, Awakening Humanity, Thursdays, 12 noon on talkradio.nyc. TalkingAlternative.com Rediscovering New York and our episode about New York's greatest park, Central Park and Prospect Park. Uh, the guest on the second part of the show is David Griffin, who's the show's special consultant, and David's also the CEO of Landmark Branding. David, do you want to tell our listeners about Landmark Branding? Sure. So I provide uh, basically marketing support to brokers, uh, developers, and owners of historic and architecturally significant buildings. Uh, I work with residential. I work with commercial um, I've done things like building profiles, for example. I've done VIP tours. I've done website uh, texts. I've done uh, both team and single broker bios, uh, corporate statements, basically anything and everything to do with kind of getting important buildings and important places out in front of the public and really kind of turning an address into a, a location so that people kind of see the buildings and the spaces in their context, in their history, and really as kind of economic engines of the city, as well as just places to kind of you know, park business or collateral. Well, you have a, an extraordinary company and a great business model. Uh, and I would encourage our listeners to go to your website, landmarkbranding.com, and also to uh, check out uh, every building on Fifth. It, it, it's really spectacular. I haven't I haven't been through the whole thing just because there are so many hundreds of buildings. I'm so, slowly making my way through it. It took, um, took four years. So. Took, wow, wow. Almost as long as, to, as it took to, to build and design Prospect Park. Speaking of which... Um, what were the concepts that Olmsted and Vox used to design Prospect Park, and were they any different from what they used for Central Park? Uh, they were pretty much part and parcel of what was used in Central Park, but because Prospect Park has a very irregular shape and is a smaller space than Central Park, they took a slightly different approach in how they achieved those goals. Um, they definitely made use of certain glacial features and other geological formations that are already there. Uh, but they did, as they did in Central Park, they brought in a lot of soil. They brought in, uh, they planted many, many trees. Uh, they never removed a tree, interestingly enough, unless it was where a road was going to go or a path or staircase. So all of the original trees on the site, as many of them as possible, were retained. 
um, what they did was they, they really wanted to kind of embody the pastoral uh, and the aesthetic ideals that were sort of identified as the picturesque movement during the 19th century. And the picturesque movement favored irregularity, it favored sort of natural convergence, it favored um, asymmetrical effects. It was tied in with the idea of the Gothic revival, sometimes it's also called the Romantic revival, which was very much about, you know, sort of isolated crags and the concept of the sublime and, you know, the moonlit landscape, the, the landscape kind of of romance in the, sort of in the generic sense, not just romance, as we normally think of romance as being lovey-dovey, but romance as being narrative. A romance was a, a novel, in other words. So the, the idea was that traversing Prospect Park, you're involved in a story of sorts, and it's a journey as much as just a sort of a stroll, which is what the neoclassical and Georgian parks were before. You know, you go into a very beautiful uh, Georgian era park, like Pall Mall, you go from one end of it, you go to the other, it all looks the same. It's supposed to, that's the point. But Box Holmes said we're interested in developing something where you had an idea of really kind of making a journey in an urban space. It's very kind of interesting, very compelling, and difficult to do, you know, given the, the, small, the small amount of space that they had. So, one thing. No, no. Um, I mean, for one, one of the examples that I always really, really enjoyed um, when I, because I used to live on Prospect Park at Bottle Pitcher Circle, is that regardless of going north to south or south to north, the park looks longer than it is because they have a telescoped sense of perspective. They create three segmented lawns that are diamond shaped, so you have a forced perspective that leads away from the eye, even as you're moving through it. So it just is one of those things where it really seems to open up again and again and again in front of you, and it really is a remarkable effect. I think, I think in some ways it's superior in that sense to anything they achieved at Central Park because they weren't, they weren't dealing with such a, uh, a straightened kind of you know, landmass. So. Mm. Well, one of the features, uh, a thing about Prospect Park that's not true of Central Park is Prospect Park actually includes a primeval forest, Brooklyn's only primeval forest. And Central Park does not. The only primeval forest in Manhattan is actually in Inwood Hill Park, the northern yes. part of the island. Yes, which is another fascinating remnant. How was the park received by the public when it was opened? And what, it was opened in 1868, was it, or thereabouts? It, they began to open it up before it was finished. And yes, I believe portions of it were made open by 1868. I think it was the northern part of the park that opened first. Uh, by that time, they had put in over 200 benches to accommodate visitors. And I believe the last part of the park to be finished under the Vox and Olmsted plan was uh, Prospect Lake, which is a man-made lake. That is not a, a natural feature of the park. Um, it was very popular, and unlike Central Park, it was popular with a much broader uh, range of people right from the beginning, because these are people who were, they were middle class, they were lower middle class, they were, you know, they were people who lived in the area, they were people coming to the area. They weren't the well-to-do who are beginning to line the avenues of uh, Central Park, you know, Fifth Avenue and Central Park West became very aristocratic, and the area around um, Prospect Park, while it's you know, very, very nice, particularly the Park Slope area, it never quite was more than that. So it's sort of like you have like regular families. And there was a lot of sports that went on in Prospect Park. There was a lot of picnicking, which was actually frowned upon in Central Park. That was considered an activity that was not genteel. You didn't be outside or people could see you. Um, and there was, unfortunately, because of this, there was also a lot of litter 
Um, and it was one of the things that was kind of noted as early as the 1880s. People were saying, my goodness, everybody comes here. And, you know, there's papers and things flying all over the place. And there were several movements to clean and renovate the park during that time period, uh, kind of to remove litter, increase plantings, and other things, including increasing lighting, because they found out that people were using Prospect Park as a lover's lane of sorts. They didn't want couples sitting on benches kissing with the lights out. So Lord have mercy. Saw, everywhere you saw a bench in Prospect Park, there was a lantern park next to it for some period of time. Oh, wow. Wow. Yeah. So it was, it was very rapidly a success. Well, on the northern end of the park, David, um, the main entrance of the park sits on Grand Army Plaza, which in my view really is the most grand and magnificent intersection in all of New York City. It, 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 it's unbelievable. Was it designed at the same time that Olmsted and Vox designed the park, or, or, or was it designed afterward? No, the Olmsted and Vox stopped collaborating on the park's construction in 1873. At that point, their original plan was mostly done, and there was a financial panic that year. So the park, they, they dissolved the partnership with Prospect Park, um, and they never got around to building some of the things they really wanted to do, which would have included an observation tower, which would have been awesome. Uh, they wanted to build a terrace restaurant. They wanted to build a carriage concourse. Um, but, you know, they just kind of said goodbye to it. And then late 19th century, early 20th century, the City Beautiful movement kicks up. Uh, a new, you know, sort of um, growth of wealth occurs. And uh, so they start building in 1892, the Soldier and Sailor's Arch of Grand Army Plaza. And all these very, very ornate neoclassical buildings and entrances are incorporated, including the one that you just mentioned, but also things like the Tennis House, the Boat House. Numerous pillars and columns and statues were put throughout the whole park. Actually, to the reported disgust of Vox and Olmsted, who were still very much uh, sort of in love with the kind of Gothic revival, stormy, natural, you know, boulders and tumbled crags. And they're like, oh, all this, all this neoclassicism. It's all so, so frilly and, you know, sort of, sort of ornate, you know. But, you know, I think that it really merges both sensibilities very well. You'd never think that any one given it, uh, part of the park was sort of not in the style of another part. That's really kind of the, the in other words, what Vox Olmsted created was so great that it could really, really incorporate a lot of later details that were also in, in very different styles. Well, we have about a minute left, and, and I wanted to bookend the Revolutionary War history with, with, with Prospect Park. Um, there's more recent military history there, specifically around the time of the Second World War. Uh, what would people living around the park have seen in the park during the war? Well, uh, interestingly enough, during the, uh, during the Second World War, um, at that point, uh, Mayor Fiorella Guardian, in 1934, had appointed Robert Moses as the Commissioner of the University for Department of Parks. So he was kind of in charge of this. He opened up Prospect Park Zoo, Van Schelt, such and so forth. A lot of new building went on. But there was also, uh, during World War II, Prospect Park hosted a portion of the city's anti-aircraft defense. So 300 soldiers were in Prospect Park manning batteries, underground ammunition dumps, observation towers, repair shops, barracks around Swan Lake in the Long Meadow area. Wow. So the defenses were disbanded in 1944, but you could still find traces of the sandbags and the slip trenches for gun emplacements several years afterwards. People have occasionally found fragments of this as, as recently as five years ago. Wow. 
Well, David, we're out of time. Fascinating conversation. Thank you so much for we, we, being. We could, have, we could have said so much more, right? Yes. Well, it's always that's always the case. There's always so much more of, of, of this city's amazing history and its legacies and its culture and its parks. Um, thank you. Our second guest has been David Griffin of Landmark Branding. Uh, David's business can be reached at www.landmarkbranding.com. Well, thank you for joining us on this week's exploration to two of New York's greatest parks, Central Park and Prospect Park. If you have comments or questions about the show, or if you'd like to get on our mailing list, please email me, jeff at rediscoveringnewyork.nyc. You can like us on Facebook. That's Rediscovering New York with Jeff Goodman. And also follow me on Instagram and Twitter. My handle's there at jeffgoodmannyc. Once again, I'd like to thank our sponsors, Chris Pappas, mortgage banker at TD Bank, and the law offices of Tom Siaka, specializing in wills, estate planning, probate, and inheritance litigation. One more thing before we sign off, I'm Jeff Goodman, a real estate agent at Halstead in New York City. And whether you're selling, buying, leasing, or renting, my team and I provide the best service and expertise in New York City real estate. To help you with your real estate needs, you can reach us at 646-306-4761. Our producer is Ralph Storier. Our engineer is Sam Leibowitz. Our special consultant, who is our second guest tonight, is David Griffin of Landmark Branding. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. Radio, 24 hours a day. Do you run or are ready to open your own business? Hi, I'm Jeremiah Fox. I've been operating and opening small business for the last 25 years, and I'm the host of the new show, The Entrepreneurial Web. Tune in every Friday at noon Eastern time for insights and stories on the nuances of running small business right here on Fridays at noon, talkradio.nyc. I'm the aptly named host of Tony Martinetti Nonprofit Radio, big nonprofit ideas for the other 95%. Fundraising, board relations, social media, my guests and I cover everything that small and mid-sized shops struggle with. If you have big dreams and a small budget, you have a home at Tony Martinetti Nonprofit Radio. Fridays, 1 to 2 Eastern at TalkingAlternative.com. Hey, all you crazy listeners, looking to boost your business? Why not advertise on Talking Alternative with very reasonable rates? Interested? Simply email at info at talkingalternative.com. Are you a conscious co-creator? Are you on a quest to raise your vibration and your consciousness? I'm Sam Leibowitz, your Conscious Consultant, and on my show, The Conscious Consultant Hour, Awakening Humanity, we will touch upon all these topics and more. Listen live at our new time on Thursdays at 12 noon Eastern Time. That's The Conscious Consultant Hour, Awakening Humanity, Thursdays, 12 noon on talkradio.nyc. You're 
You're listening to the Talking Alternative Network at www.talkingalternative.com. Now, broadcasting 24 hours a day. Talking Alternative. Do you love or are you intrigued about New York City and its neighborhoods? I'm Jeff Goodman, host of Rediscovering New York, a weekly show that showcases New York's history and its extraordinary neighborhoods. Every Tuesday live at 7 p.m., we focus on a particular neighborhood and explore its history, its vibe, its feel, and its energy. Tune in live every Tuesday at 7 p.m. on talkradio.nyc. You're listening to the Talking Alternative Network. 